Okay. Oh, oh, are, you, are you rolling? I'm rolling. I'm rolling. So, yeah, so I discovered, Amy, that the worst experience is having your air conditioning break in the middle of a pandemic because you literally have no option to go anywhere else. Mm. So I've been stuck at 90 degree temperatures for three days and I was seriously contemplating, like, can I go and sleep in the office? Is there air conditioning there? I will, oh, I will catch the virus again. <laughs> and I will be fine with it. Like, just, just let me get some cool air. It's yeah, a- oh, that's grim. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy. And I'm James Pamba, a deputy editor of Foreign Policy. On this week's episode, we're going to take a look at how life in cities could be changed by the pandemic. And later on, we'll be joined by Professor Sarah Carr, an assistant professor at Northeastern University. We'll also hear from Richard Florida, professor at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. But first this. The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I feel like everything that made city living great has been completely turned on its head and become a liability during the pandemic. So things like being close to the office, public transport, theatres, bars, restaurants, you know, all of those fabulous things that draw people into urban centres have now become liabilities. Yeah, I mean, I I think the city is built on proximity. That's the great virtue Mm. of it, on being close to things and on being close to people. And without that, uh, you know, you're just paying a lot more money for a lot less space. I do think that it's been better and nicer to be in neighborhoods that still feel like neighborhoods instead of purely in the suburbs for psychological purposes for a lot of people during during lockdown. Also, I think actually city dwellers did better during, you know, the great toilet paper rush just because of having more shops available. But obviously, you know, all the things that people value about life, really, um, or make the decision to go to the city for are very dampened. DC has just reopened restaurants to outdoor seating, and even that feels so exciting and daring now. The thought of like sitting down to a meal with a waiter, I know, you know, it sounds blissful. It's going to be, you know, just a, a magical mask filled experience. I'm on that kind of generational threshold where my age group are not quite ready to move out to the suburbs yet, but a lot of people I know. Um, have moved back home with their parents to their hometowns or wherever, I think for the extra space. As somebody who had to spend, you know, a fair amount of time uh, over the last few years at in the UK doing visas or this kind of thing, mm. yeah, I would, I mean, I like seeing my parents. I like um, spending time with them. I need to get out of there after about three days. Yeah. It's, uh, hello, yeah. my mum listens to this podcast religiously, but I think she knows she she, she knows that already. But also the sense of not being able to walk anywhere is, mm. is so bizarre. Like the not even having sidewalks, yeah. and you know this is and this is a mode of living that of course is is hugely environmentally destructive too. 
Like, I mean, the American suburb is sort of the antithesis of the things that we're going to need to fight climate change in terms of, you know, transport density and so on. But one of the things in the pandemic is, of course, if it may encourage that at just the point when we need, when we actually need people to be living closer together and in Mm -hmm. more energy efficient environments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading about that when I was living in New York and kind of it feels counterintuitive that cities may be may feel less healthy right because new york you get off the subway and it just feels so icky but it's actually far better for the environment to live in a city because you take public transport you live in a smaller apartment you also just have less space to collect as much um crap for want of a better word when you're living in an apartment versus a house with a basement and so your just environmental footprint is that much lower in a city exactly and a lot of that comes down to again proximity you know the energy is gets spent traveling two miles to work, five miles to work is an awful lot less than 30 miles or 50. But it does feel like the pandemic is in many, many different ways is speeding up trends that were already there. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if we'll see that with cities that, I mean, in the US, you know, in the past kind of seven to 10 years, there has been, especially big cities have actually been slowing in growth and in some cases losing population. You know, people who were kind of on the cusp of moving out anyway, people with young families, probably going to maybe do that a bit sooner but I am interested in how my age group so people in their kind of 30s like you know city young professionals who are maybe just pre-family stage what that cohort is going to do because a lot is going to depend on what happens with house prices Mm. and it has just seemed for a long time like houses have been wildly inaccessible for my generation Mm -hmm. unless you have happened to come from money and Mm -hmm. so you know, that may draw more young people into cities if house prices fall, or they may just decide to say, you know what, let's skip city living in our 30s and head straight to the suburbs. Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like if, if you're going to the suburbs, you're almost always at that house buying point anyway. And so it does seem mm-hmm. as though like taking that level of renters out actually creates a lot of space. And of course, also the fall of Airbnb and similar institutions. A lot of places that have been functionally driving up prices significantly are, are you know, going bust or in serious financial danger. People even looking at different cities just because they figure that remote working will continue for a long time. So, you know, people going from like New York to Philadelphia or even to smaller towns up in Maine or so on. I think there's something very attractive about that. I mean, you know, you you think about living somewhere like Philly, which is a great city. I love Philadelphia. Like, but also half the price of New York or DC. And uh, you saw it, you know, you see it in the UK, of course, like that. um, Every friend I've ever had who, like, had an office job in London and had the opportunity to move to the office in Leeds or Edinburgh was just delighted Mm -hmm. because, you know, their quality of life went up immensely just through virtue of, like, avoiding the commute and, and everything being half price. Yeah. So one of the most interesting things I learned when I was doing the research for this episode was how tuberculosis outbreaks shaped the modernism design style of the early 20th century. So things like, you know, high ceilings, large windows, these white walls, kind of large unbroken panes, you know, very minimalistic compared to previous decades and styles that came before it. And that was in part apparently um, inspired by the tuberculosis sanatoriums because one of the treatments for TB was not only being out in the countryside at sanatoriums but light light was was thought to be very very good as an effective treatment so sanatoriums had these very large windows and and also um 
hygiene as well you know with the advancement of germ theory this realization that clutter and trinkets and little uh, intricate nooks and crannies were actually possible places where, where germs could gather and so that was how you got this light airy white room mm-hmm. style of modernism for want of a better word um, and so to learn a bit more about how past public health outbreaks have shaped the cities that we now know today. I spoke to Professor Sarah Carr of Northeastern University, who's actually working on a book about this very issue called The Topography of Wellness, which looks at how six epidemics have transformed American cities. Here's our conversation. How much have the cities that we already know and love been shaped by previous outbreaks of communicable diseases? Uh, So, you know, much of the built environment that we occupy today uh, was formed by diseases, especially those that came up right after the Industrial Revolution and the initial um, occupation of cities. So if you think about early cities, and that's from New York to Washington, D.C., to Boston, where I live, to San Francisco, Mm -hmm. the economy was shifting from agricultural to industrial. And also a lot of these cities didn't have municipal waste pickup. Um, There were lots of outdoor privies, even in in private residences. Uh, What happened was there was an outbreak of what we would call filth diseases, such as uh, cholera Mm -hmm. and yellow fever. Um, the, the violence of these diseases and the fact that they persisted, that there were many outbreaks that persisted over a period of time, um, really spurred public health uh, authorities, uh, urban planners and designers to come together to think about how they could confront those diseases on all fronts. And so uh, really the, the first change to our built environment that we saw and that we still see today, because a lot of these systems are still, you know, the original ones in place, was the invention of uh, wastewater systems and sewers. Um, Hmm. So to install these large sewers and pipes underneath the streets, that uh, spurred a lot of changes from how wide the streets were, from which way they ran, right, because they wanted the pipes to run out towards water bodies, um, even to changing the paving on a lot of streets. So uh, cobblestones were thought to hold like filth and germs and diseases, right, or or stenches. So, um, you know, in, in one account of New York, there was a sanitary surveyor that was advocating for changing all the cobblestone streets to smooth Belgian pavement instead, so you could wash it down at the end of the day. And so, um, so these streets, Many of the ones that we walk today are are very much a result of uh, those changes that came um, after cholera and yellow fever. Um, the other change we saw in cities was the campaign to build large parks, which again, especially on the East Coast, we occupy a lot of those today. Um, the the onslaught of respiratory diseases. Um, led people to advocate for the building of large parks to sort of make what what they called lungs Mm -hmm. of the city or breathing spaces. Um, Because more and more people were still moving into the city, there had to be a place where uh, where they could have a respite, right? And uh, Mm -hmm. physicians, landscape architects, urban planners all wrote about the importance of trees and large parks to literally clean the air. And even though they didn't have the science behind it then, they um, they were still able to advocate it for. There was just sort of an intuitive uh, link between greenery and cleaning the air and also um, healthy spaces. I keep coming across this word and it, it's kind of a, a fantastic word of miasma. Can yeah. you just explain what, what that is sure. and, and how that informed thinking about built environments? Yeah, so um, uh, miasma was especially a hot topic of debate in early industrial revolution cities. And that was the idea that 
um, disease was transferred um, through the air, right? And so basically, uh, and that's why people really feared uh, stagnant water, right? Especially, or sort of piles of waste, because they thought like, you know, maybe by just walking past a, a pile of garbage or by, you know, putrid water that they could catch the disease. Um, the actual mm-hmm. truth about those diseases is that they were um, spread through contagion, right? Or through the ingestion uh, of some sort of bacteria mm-hmm. that made them sick. Um, but because at the time, you know, people didn't didn't know they were sort of fighting it on all fronts. Um, and, and I think that's that's something that's really interesting about that uh, era around the Industrial Revolution is that um, they were aiming to get people to uh, wash their hands and, and bathe more frequently because it has to do with um, contagion. They were thinking about um, density, specifically overcrowding in, in tenements uh, because that had to do with contagion. But then at the same time, they were making all of these changes in the city that would improve the air and water quality, uh, which just mm. persists over time, back to Hippocrates' time. Um, clean air and clean water um, in cities is, is always good for health. Um, and so even though um, miasma as a theory was mostly disproven by the early 20th century, um, the the fear of it gave us a lot of our great urban amenities today, whether it's, you know, wide boulevards or large parks or, or you know, trees in our cities. When looking back at the examples of previous um, epidemics, major public health crises, what can we learn from the way that things changed after them? Was it, you know, were there positive public health developments in the built urban environment for everybody? Or was it pretty unequally spread depending on where you lived? Well, I, I think the real uh, issue is, and I think this is what I, I, I fear we might see again, is that, the, you know, there were um, changes that definitely benefited a wide swath of people, like, you know, the installation of wastewater infrastructure, uh, the building of public mm-hmm. parks, which were very much, you know, driven this by this idea that everybody could use them because when they were built at that time, it was, it was sort of a response to the elite leaving the city for um, for country estates. But, you know, if we just have to remember that all of those changes came at the cost of displacing people. Um, often mm-hmm. working class neighborhoods, often communities of color. So Central Park, mm-hmm. right, which is held up as a uh, as as a model of how to build a healthier urban environment, came at the cost of raising Seneca Village, which was a very prominent African American neighborhood and another Irish immigrant neighborhood. Um, another fairly ugly recurring trend we've seen throughout years is that we start to see diseases associated um, with the people that are most vulnerable to them instead of the environments and maybe the larger socioeconomic mm. environment that made them vulnerable to these disease diseases. Um, and we've also seen public health used as leverage to um, to displace people, right? And urban renewal um, in the 1970s is probably mm-hmm. the most obvious example. Um, and so I, even though I, I, you know, I've been studying this topic for over a decade now, I never saw an infectious pandemic <laughs> coming. I just, I never thought it, that uh, that we'd be dealing with this kind of crisis. But um, seeing these kind of recurring rhetorics and seeing how inequitably this pandemic affects people, I, I just hope uh, that this is taken as, as an opportunity to build a healthier city for everybody. That was Professor Sarah Carr of Northeastern University. Hey listeners, it turns out that our collective action can stop more than just global pandemics. Discover reasons for hope on the climate crisis with Heat of the Moment, 
a new series from FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts. So that's a pretty well-timed book to be working on if you're in the middle of a pandemic and working on a book about how six previous epidemics shaped cities. It's, I mean, just imagine all the people who, who had you know books coming out on like, the future is crowds, why being closer together is better than ever. <laughs> it's, I know. Uh, Maybe you should just save books for the right moment, like just delay yeah. publication until the volcano explodes. Anyway, off of books and, and back to cities, yeah. the topic at hand. So, yeah, one of the things I have been thinking, though, is that I think people may carry the antipathy towards like crowded restaurants for some time. Like mm. that feels yeah. feels like as a locus of sort of distrust. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you think of the average New York restaurant in particular before the pandemic where, you know, you would be extremely intimate with the person at the next table. And I, I think that, you know, what we've been seeing is sort of reopening geared towards outdoor seating. And I wonder if that'll cause like some real change in the way that we think that downtown streets are shaped, especially if you don't need that traffic for offices for commuting. If you turn that space into open seatings, that could really shift American cities towards the kind of designs we more commonly associate with Europe, the sort mm-hmm. of outdoor life, that street life sort of thing. Yeah, again, that seems like quite a pleasant thought in the middle of all this. And it's actually already starting to happen. At the weekend, we went um, to Alexandria for a walk down the waterfront, and at the bottom of King Street, which is this um, main thoroughfare through Alexandria, which has lots of cute shops and restaurants and things like that. At the very end, they've, they've done exactly that. They've closed off the road. Um, restaurants have their tables out in the street. And it was pretty crowded with people. We didn't go down, but not a lot of people staying six foot apart from each other. But, you know, that would actually be really lovely to see in American cities is a little bit more of that kind of public square well, also thing the, that you have in Europe. Also, as the climate shifts, you're going to have this paradox whereby some places are going to become much nicer outdoors and some places are going to become much worse. But that does seem like an attractive option, particularly for a lot of northern cities. It has limited applicability to my native Scotland, however, where... Even in summer, there's anyone's guess whether or not it's going to rain or it'll be sunny. So limited to places with more reliable environments. Well, the chance of like just being pillaged in Scotland is obviously always high. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I feel like you don't. I feel like you don't insult the English enough in this conversation, Amy. I, it's, it's, you know, the so. Well, I've much- never. I've never told you this, but it you know it's a dark family secret that we don't really talk about. But my mum's actually English. Oh my god. Uh, well, that is that is shameful. Have you ever put on a top hat just to see what it felt like? <laughs> <laughs> top hat and tails, just to see how it fits. Um, I mean, you always kind of hear after a major crisis, right? Like 9-11, the Great Recession, that it's the end of cities, you know, life is going to change and somehow things carry on. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not that happens this time around or whether this could actually um, trigger a real shift in city living. For our next interview, I spoke to the urbanist Richard Florida, who's a professor at the University of Toronto. He studied the development of cities for decades and he spoke about this very issue. You know, he said that after 9-11, the recession, both times he vastly underestimated how quickly cities would come roaring back and that he's not going to make the same mistake this time. Here's our conversation. I wanted to speak to you in particular for this episode because you contributed to our roundup on farmpolicy.com about how the pandemic may shape the future of cities. And you were pretty upbeat that cities will go on. What makes you so optimistic about this? 
I'm actually more upbeat the longer time goes on. And it's sort of amazing to me that in the immediate wake of a crisis, in this case, it's a global pandemic of an infectious disease. Uh, But the same thing happened with the economic and financial crisis of 2008. And the same thing happened uh, in the wake of the terrorist attacks of 9-11. You get this incredible wave of short-term dystopian thinking. and, And it is always the same. Uh, cities which have had this joyous ride because affluent people went back are going to take a turn for the worse. They're going to see boarded up storefronts. People are going to move to the suburbs. Cities are going to die. There's going to be the end of death of density. I mean, it's it's always the same story. And on the other hand, you know, by the way, there's no shortage in this time around of utopian takes of people saying, you know, we're going to wake up one day and our cities will be filled with bike lanes and pedestrianized streets and better parks and sidewalk cafes and the cars will be gone. And neither of them are accurate. There's no doubt to me that New York and Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles and San Francisco and London and Paris will continue to be great cities. Um, They will be magnificent cities. They're probably going to have a hard time in the next six to nine to 12 months, but they will persevere. And in fact, what what crises like this tend to do is accelerate changes already underway. They're not really big disruptions. Uh, They tend to accelerate changes already underway. And and, the way I'd put it is in a three decade plus career as an academic, I'd never once thought about Never once crossed my mind the role of pandemics or infectious disease in shaping the trajectory of urbanization. That's because urbanization has always been a greater force. The force that pushes us together in denser agglomerations, that we, we work better, we're more productive, more innovative, has always overcome pandemics. Far worse than this one, you know, the 1918 pandemic. New York City grew by 2 million people between 1910 and 1930. You go back to the cholera epidemics in London, the great plagues in Europe, which might have killed 40 to 50 percent of urban populations. They really never dented the trajectory of of cities. And in fact, what has tended to happen, which sounds so bizarre, is that young people and highly ambitious people and immigrants tend to move towards cities in the wake of pandemics, largely because of the opportunities they offer. So, yeah, in, in, you know, cities are going to have a hard run fiscally, economically. transport-wise over the next six to nine to 12 months, but they'll be fine in the long run. This is the first devastating global pandemic that we've seen in the digital age, you know, where white-collar jobs in particular are less and less tied to specific locations. Could that change the equation at all? Well, I think we're lucky, and, and I think that's one of the reasons we've been able to mitigate the effects of this pandemic, because, you know, that that's going to mitigate the spread um, and yeah, not just that, we have better medical technology, we have better hospital systems. I mean, this is the, the first real pandemic that's hit the advanced world when it is in this kind of situation. I think with regard to remote work, I think that's going to be a la- I think there are a couple trends that will be lasting. Remote work will be one. They say 40% of us can remote work. It won't be 40% of us. Maybe 20, it's up, you know, maybe 20% of us will decide we like it. I think online education will also stick, maybe not completely online education, but my kids, I have a three and a four-year-old, I can tell you my main, my main disciplinary technique right now is you have to go to real school. They don't know any different. They're like, no, no, I'll be good if you let me go to Zoom school. Um, and I think bike lanes. I think, you know, this sounds so trite, but I think the other big thing we'll see in cities, which we often do, you know, streets get widened, parks get made better. We put public drinking. So I think bike lanes, I mean, it sounds, those are the kinds of things that will endure. Um, But I think with regard to remote work, 
I like to think about the factors that act on cities in, in, in two separate set of forces. There are pull factors. Uh, pull factors are like remote work, um, fear of transit. Um, and I, and I, think, I think there's one cohort in particular that's likely to leave cities and that has left cities, maybe two. Uh, one, one is older and more vulnerable people. We'll just, but, but I think the main one is people in the family formation years. I think it's everyone I know who's left a big city, and particularly Manhattan, has had the same profile. They're a youngish couple, or maybe not so youngish couple. Um, they have one or two or three kids. Those kids are all like one, two, three, four, five, maybe six. Or they're, they're newly with child or trying to have children. So they're in that family formation stage. And I think what's happening is those folks have just said, I, I can't deal with it for a whole expense, space, no place to work remotely. I'm scared of transit. I want to drive a car. I want a yard. I want a swing set. So I think what the pandemic has done is accelerated moves that would have occurred over, say, three to five, one to two to three to five years. Because people would have postponed this. I'll stay in Chelsea for a few years. I'll stay in DuPont Circle for a few more years. I'll stay in downtown San Francisco. And then they go, no, screw it. Um, but on the other hand, I think there are push factors. And the push factors, I think, are that, that really important industries like high tech, finance, media and entertainment are not going to decentralize. Maybe some of their workers will decentralize, particularly mid-career workers. They're going to stay in New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles. You know, the list goes on. Um, and I think young people are going to flock to cities. I, I think that young people are, who are risk oblivious anyway are just going to go buy opportunities in cities. Other young people are in cities. There's a better mating market in cities. And so I think that what you're likely to see in the short term is cities to get younger. And I think if cities play their cards right because of the you know residential real estate prices won't increase as much. There'll be a glut of offices that nobody knows what to do with. Although I think young people who are in a cramped apartment are going to want to work in an office pretty quickly. So I don't think it's going to be as bad as everyone says. And there'll be some retail, you know, there's some retail stuff that's going to be crunched. I think that cities have a little opportunity of a few years to reset themselves so they could be more attractive to working people, to young people, and to artistic and musical creatives who've been pushed out. You mentioned earlier that there's been some utopian thinking as to how this could shape cities, that the cities of the future after this are going to be full of bike lanes and large parks and everything is going to be lovely. Um, but we didn't exactly need a pandemic to tell us that cities were woefully unequal places and that your zip code can in many ways predict your life expectancy. So do you think we're actually going to learn anything from the experience of this pandemic? Do you share this utopian thinking? Unfortunately, no. I mean, I, I mean, I would invoke my Karl Marx and say a crisis lays bare the contradictions of capitalism and makes everyone aware of, you know, the horribly satanic mills and all of that. You know, I read my Marx through and through, but the honest history is, you know, if you read the history of the 1918 pandemic, that alone, people call it the forgotten pandemic. That's what it's called. That's the actual name of the pandemic, the forgotten pandemic. And personally, you know, I didn't know this until now because I looked up pandemics. I was born in 1957. My mom was pregnant with me in the middle of a pandemic. And, and it, that was a pandemic that hit infants and children as well as others. She never they never mentioned it. Moreover, my parents were born, born both in the 20s, uh, but they're amongst the youngest of their respective very large families, families of seven which means nearly all of my aunts and uncles were either born during the Spanish flu or kids during the Spanish flu. Nobody told me. I had no, I mean, I'd heard the term Spanish flu, 
but in my own family. So, and, and in, when people talk about the forgotten pandemic, they say none of the great writers, Hemingway, Faulkner, and all the rest, they talked about the war, they talked about economic crises, they never, so there's something in our psyches. And then of course, what followed the 1918 pandemic for better or worse is the roaring twenties. There's something in our psyches that doesn't allow us to adequately process these things. In the way that we remember wars and great economic crises, we tend to forget. So my biggest hope is that we don't forget. If you ask me what my biggest hope is, not that we think in a utopian way, but that we simply remember, because my fear is that this is the warning pandemic. And in a way, as horrifically, 100,000 Americans dead is just a horrifying number. But the reality is this could be a much worse disease. It could be much more lethal. It's plenty contagious, but it could be much more lethal. And it, 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 instead of taking our elders mainly and, and disproportionately minorities, it could, it could target children the way, you know, as a father of young kids, that would just, I couldn't sleep. So, so maybe the only, I don't want to call it silver lining. The only thing we could look to is that this prepares us. Like, I just think we need to take this stuff really seriously and, and build cities and community suburbs that are much more effective at being able to be equipped to battle these things. Because I don't think this is the, I mean, no one in their right mind would think, but I don't think anyone thinks this is the last one. It may be, they may actually be accelerating with climate change and all the other, globalization and all the other things that are happening. That was Professor Richard Florida of the University of Toronto. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Monday. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, head over to foreignpolicy.com for all the latest news and analysis on how the coronavirus is shaping the world as we know it. And if you have pandemic fatigue, and let's face it, no one would blame you, we've got plenty of coverage of all the other things that are happening in the world as well. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by me and Darcy Palder and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands. And don't touch your face. <laughs>